From uh, Matthew's Gospel, he records the following from the crucifixion scene of Jesus. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, putting it on a reed, and it gave, him, uh, gave to him to drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Cries from the cross has been my assigned topic. In addition to that, I have been asked to overview, if you will, to introduce, to perhaps preview the summer series regarding these lost or these last words of Jesus. And I'll, I'll be honest, is there is a unique challenge as well as a temptation in that. The challenge is to summarize all of those powerful statements in a brief period of time and yet not to traipse all over what those speakers who are coming behind might share with you. And then there is the temptation to say, well, they should have got here first and go ahead and do it the way that I wanted to. But instead, I'll do my best to try to set the scene for those things that will follow as well as share some insights that I have uh, been considering as I have looked at these um, cries of Jesus from the cross. Before we do that, however, we are going to have to go much further back in time because the cries from the cross are without significance if we do not consider the cries that have come for generations before the cross. In fact, go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture and you will find some famous criers. No doubt, though the text is not recorded for us, Adam and Eve, having forsaken God's instruction, eaten of the forbidden fruit, and they were cast from the garden, surely they realized at that moment, because they knew the sin that they had uh, involved themselves in, they knew what they had lost. That would have done more than just bring a tear to your eye. I have a feeling they left those uh, gates of Eden, uh, weeping heavily. How about you just move a chapter up in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 4. How about Eve when she learns of the fact that one of her sons has killed the other son? Now, I don't have to know Eve. I know mothers. They worry about their children. And when their children do good, they're happy. When their children don't do good, they're sad. But when a mother's child does something wicked or bad to another child, she is torn at both extremes. And no doubt there was weeping on Eve's part. Imagine the days of Noah when the world became so corrupted that God decided he had to wash the earth clean of the iniquity, preserving only Noah and his family. Again, we don't know the event in detail except to say that once the ark was complete, that God put Noah or Noah and his family into the ark and God closed the door. And it began to rain and rain and rain and rain. 
It is, as the New Testament looks back on that event, those who rejected the teaching of Noah, one would imagine that those individuals, realizing that there was now no hope for them, as they screamed, as they clawed, as they begged for the door to be open, and realizing that there was no hope for them now, no doubt they wailed beyond recognition. I think about those things as they unfold. I think about individuals in the Old Testament who had some terrible things that happened to them. I think about one by the name of Esau, realizing that he had turned away his entire birthright in exchange for a cup of soup, a bean porridge. Or his brother Jacob, years later, when he became a father of 12 sons, and though it was a hideous plot to pretend that their brother was killed, they came to him and they said, here is his garment, it's covered with blood, implying that he had been murdered when he hadn't. They had, in fact, thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery. But for that moment, Jacob believed that his son had been torn limb from limb, and he wept. How about those people, the descendants of Israel, who lived in the land of Egypt in the days after Joseph, and they realized that no longer were they fellow citizens as they once had been, but instead they now were under the lash, and God brought uh, victory or release through the man Moses, but for 400 years they cried out to God for some kind of rescue. I think of that night, a night that is so often called the initiation or the uh, ordination of Passover, when God brought that tenth and final plague on Israel's Egyptian captives. And on that night, those who had not adequately prepared according to God's instruction, that God took from the firstborn of those households. In fact, the, th the text says, says that there was not a household in Egypt that was not affected, was not weeping over the loss of those children. Israel leaves out of Egypt. They have a great opportunity to turn the sorrow into happiness, but they don't. Instead, they form a graven image. And on that particular occasion, when Moses returns from receiving the law of God, he sees what the people has done. There is uh, the punishment of God falls on so many of them. I can't imagine this to be some casual affair, that there was not all sorts of weeping for those that were punished because of their insolence and their idolatry. God takes them to the door of promised Canaan, and there they were. This is the very thing that God had promised Abraham, and yet they were unwilling to heed the commitment, the promise. And so for 40 years, a generation died as they wandered aimlessly in the wilderness. And I have a feeling that there were a lot of tears about those who would never see the promise. In fact, it even makes me think about Abraham. I mean, here's the father of a nation. Can you imagine the tears that he felt when God instructed him that he was to kill his promised son? Or back up even further, when man, in the form of Abraham, taking things of his own into his own hands, he took the handmaiden of Sarah, his wife, Hagar, and they had a child, Ishmael. Sarah became jealous and envious over that, and Abraham sent her, that is Hagar, 
and Ishmael out into the wilderness. You think he cried? I think he did. I know that we find that she gets out to the wilderness and she weeps. I guess you could say it's only due justice that one day that Abraham would be there at the grave of his wife, Sarah, and he would weep bitterly. Finally, when Israel comes out of, out of the, uh, the wilderness, they go into the land of Canaan, and with God's help, they overcome cities like Jericho and Ai. Like God had brought punishment on cities like Sodom and Gomorrah before, that God struck them down. And even though they were of the wicked and not of the righteous, God still, uh, we still would have imagined that there was a great weeping, great crying, great tears being shed for the loss of life in those situations, even though perhaps it was due and just. Finally, Israel comes in. They establish a kingdom as God has prescribed. And there is one by the name of David who becomes king of Israel. But he was not always the most honorable of kings. And he enters into a relationship that was inappropriate with Bathsheba. And it produces a child. And the child is going to die by God's uh, condemnation. And David mourns for that child. Time would come in which David would have another child, a child by the name of Absalom. Absalom would become a rebellious child, perhaps a life lesson for David of all the rebellion that he had had in his life. It ultimately will cost Absalom his life, and in those very famous words, Absalom, O oh Absalom, David wept for his son. A nation divides, a nation goes into Babylonian captivity, and the people cry at the destruction of Jerusalem and the realization that God is no longer residing amongst them. The pages of the Old Testament from beginning to end are filled with tears. But you don't have to limit yourself to only the pages of Scripture. For every page in human history is marked by similar tears. Tears of those who have experienced loss, those who have experienced sickness or disease and some form of suffering. I mean, there have been so many tears in human history that we find it running like a river. And as it brings to the context of tonight's lesson, it pools at the cross of Jesus Christ, looking for some relief for the pain and the agony that has been suffered. And as we get to the foot of the cross, the tears do not stop immediately there. We find Jesus' mother, Mary, she has been a disciple of Jesus, following him for a long time. She was one of the first to hear the announcement that her son would be the great deliverer of God's people, that he would be the people to save them from their sin. The text even says she treasured that, but now she had seen her son arrested, falsely accused. He'd be brought before the magistrate that acting illegally and improperly would set him up for execution on the most torturous device known to the men of that time, the cross. And she would watch him as he received the lashes of the soldiers, as the bone and the steel that was tied in leather straps would tear at his back until it looked like hamburger meat, and see the pool of blood coming from his body, and then to be led up that mountain towards the place of execution and to fall under the weight of the cross while people struck at him and spit at him and mocked him and humiliate him. I cannot imagine a mother that would have not been overtaken completely 
with the grief of the circumstance. And now she stands with her eyes but just a few feet below those of her son. She is seeing the blood that runs from his head, the blood that runs from his back and his front, his hands that are now pierced holding him up, his feet as well. She looks upon that man who was her baby, who was her son. And the tears run from her eyes like the blood that ran from his side. And Jesus speaks. Jesus, the text, cries. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John collectively construct a series of seven cries that Jesus offered from the cross. They were of comfort and struggle. They were of personal pain as well as victory. They were those statements that were made to those nearby and to a God who at that moment, it would seem, seemed so very far away. Jesus looking at a man hanging next to him, a thief, one who had earlier been mocking him and throwing curses and insults at him, now finding at this moment of life's transition he begins to feel a degree of remorse and dare even one say repentance. And he looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus speaks to him, today you will be with me in paradise. But Jesus doesn't limit his comforting words to just that one man. He looks at the multitude, most of whom who have gathered at this spectacle, not simply as observers, but as those who have propagated this crime against God's Son. And he cries to his Father who is in heaven, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. But even in that broad view that he has of all of those who are uh, uh, at that scene, he does not miss even a thread. The human side looking down and seeing the Apostle John, whom he loved dearly, standing alongside of his mother. And he looks at his mother and says, Mother, behold your son, as he transfers responsibility that a son would have for a widowed mother over to the Apostle John. And to John, he says, John, he says, behold your mother. History tells us that Mary was taken into the house of John, and there she lived the rest of her life. It is at this point that as it goes kind of chronologically, it seems as if Jesus is now overtaken, not only emotionally, but physically, and maybe even spiritually. He finally cries out the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I do not believe that God has fors had forsaken him. In fact, I can't imagine that God would forsake the one who was doing exactly the thing that he had prescribed for him to do. In other words, Jesus on the cross could not have been more pleasing at that moment. But there is probably little doubt that the expression from the psalmist indicated that this was a messianic prophecy fulfilled. 
And I doubt it that Jesus simply was saying it as a quoting of Scripture. But instead, all that was within him said, I cannot imagine being any more alone than I am at this moment. And then simply put, he says, I thirst. He has been pulling himself up by his hands and pushing himself up by his feet for some time now. When he pushes himself up, he's able to breathe. When the pain on his, the nail in his feet is too great, he would drop on those hands and gasp out again as the last little bit of air would come forth from him. And so he would have had to push up long enough to say, I thirst, and probably drop again, and one would give him something to drink. And then in the culmination of history, the center of the ages, the fulfillment of God's ultimate promise given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, Jesus gives those immortal words, it is finished. It is paid in full. It is for this purpose that I have come. And then finally, looking into heaven, the final release from the bonds of the flesh, Jesus gives that seventh statement, Father, unto you I now commit or commend my spirit. And the text says he breathed his last and he died. I mean, that's a pretty powerful imagery. Because what we have is that we have seen that throughout human history, there has been crying, there has been weeping, there has been struggle, and there has been sickness, there has been loss, and there has been death, all because of sin. Sin was allowed entrance into the world by man forsaking God's instruction and it has plagued him. Most certainly, the sin plagued him spiritually. The sin of man, not only of Adam and Eve, but as Paul would go on to tell the church, he says, not only them, but each one of us, as we have sinned also, that there is now this broken world broken by sin. And probably we can think about it that for every happy thing that this world has had to give us to smile or to laugh at, there has been a hundred more that have brought tears to our eyes and, and uh, weeping to our hearts. And so at this moment, when Jesus cries out, what we find is that there is, there is a, another tear shed, but there is a release. There is a relief. There is a promise of something better than the tears that were shed. That Jesus Christ offered himself for the sin of mankind to put to an end the problem of sin. And along with it, the resurrection that presented itself a few days later and would give man a relief from his death problem physically speaking as well, and the promise of an eternity with God in heaven. But the blood that flowed, the tears that had been shed, the cries that were made, when we think about it, Jesus speaks to everyone. 
He cried out for those who were the wicked. Forgive them. He cried out for those who were the righteous. He cried out for those who were his closest family and closest companion. And he cried out to those who were so very distant, him not even knowing who they were in a physical sense. He cried to man. He cried out to God. He cried for others. He cried for himself. And he did so to put an end to the tears, the tears that had been produced by man's separation. As I said, we find the tears of history running like a river to the base of the cross. We find there those whose tears shed like the blood that came from him, but really the cries from the cross that Jesus made were really a call to the cross. In John chapter 12, Jesus, before his crucifixion, made it quite clear as to what the work on the cross was all about. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And on that occasion, as the upright post of the cross was lifted and it fell with a thud into its hole, human history and those in attendance had all of their eyes turned on this moment. God darkened the sun, and yet it gave a spotlight to the sun, S-O-N. There was never a moment in history like this, nor will there ever be again. And now with the work that he was doing, Jesus did what he had promised his disciples that what he would do. Just a few chapters after that section in John chapter 12, Jesus is looking at a set of disciples who are concerned and now realizing what must happen. They are tearful. They are sorrowful. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And if I go, I will return again that where I am, I can bring you to me. Now, Jesus didn't go to build heaven. Jesus went to the cross to give us a doorway to heaven, to give us a victory over sin, at least for those that would be obedient and faithful to him. It is hard to think of the moment in which Jesus hung on the cross as something that was joyful that we should rejoice about, that there was any measure in this scene of happiness. And yet, it was the great fulfillment of the hopeful promise that was God had given when he told Adam and Eve at that moment that they had forgotten and forsaken him, that there is one coming, the seed of woman, who will crush the head of Satan. It was the message that had been given through the prophets of Israel at their most darkest moment, having forsaken the instruction of God, sometimes even turning their attention to idolatrous worship. That God would say, but do not worry. There is one that is coming, a child that will be born, a son that will be given. It was for this very reason that Jesus came. And the fullness of time came, Paul said, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those that were under the law, that we might all have adoption as sons. And Jesus did his work on the cross. As we begin to think about the implications of those statements, let us not become so enamored with just what we think are these powerful statements without thinking about what was happening at this moment. We do see Jesus in his humanity. We see Jesus in his agony. We see him being able to think about everyone else, taking care of both those who had been the wicked as well as his mother. We see the work that Jesus did at that cross through those seven statements, but it is as he culminates that act by saying it is finished. I have done the work that I have come to do. It is why the cross, excuse me, the cries from the cross are a call to the cross. Listen carefully to the words that the Revelation writer puts as he looks back at the glorious work of Christ and begins to speak about those uh, who were um, uh, crying throughout history, those who had been struggling. He says, uh, John writes, Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell amongst them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. He went on to say to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I shall be his God, and he will be my son. But, in contrast, for the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, and sorcerers and idolaters, and all the liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The trail of tears ends at the cross, but only for those who surrender themselves to him. Let me say that again. The trail of tears ends at the cross, but only for those who submit themselves to him. It is only through obedience. It is only towards a life that is lived worthy of such an act, Apostle Paul would call it, that can have the hope. For the rest, as sure is the promise of relief, is the promise of continued tears, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. The life that is lived for Jesus is a better life in this life. There are fewer tears for those who will live according to the instruction of God through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that it is a life without tears. 
It does not mean that there will never be the loss of a spouse, a loss of a child. There will never be a mistake made that causes a consequence. There will never be some kind of sickness or sorrow or suffering. But they most certainly will be lessened and less in number when one finally surrenders themselves to Jesus Christ. It is an offer that even if it did not have eternity beyond it would be a glorious offer. It would be an offer in which Jesus Christ said, you can now begin to cry less, to shed less tears, to have less sorrow and less suffering by living the way that I prescribe because his instruction was not simply about him giving orders and us following them. It is about the instructions that he has given to us to make it better for us, to draw us closer to him, a place in which we conform ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ we find that there is less sorrow. But that's not the end of it. That's not the last chapter. It's not just some social service in which he releases us from the problems of this life. It is a promise of a life that lies beyond this life that is in fact free of all tears. Imagine today if you could have your life without anything that was bad. Can you imagine a life in which something as insignificant as stepping on a thorn would no longer hurt? Can you imagine never being sick at all? Can you imagine never even feeling? I mean, poor James is over here as a pharmacist going, brother, I'd be out of business. Debbie's saying, boy, he'd be out of business. I mean, she's thinking about James. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine never losing a loved one again? Can you imagine never having in your life ever had to stand at the grave or at the casket of a loved one and weep for their loss? Can you imagine that there is nothing that was sorrowful, no kinds of suffering, no kinds of disease, no kinds of decay, no kind of death? I mean, can you even imagine what your life would be back like? Dare I say, perfect? I mean, it is the imperfections that sin brought that keeps life from being everything that God had initially intended it for be, to be. But man destroyed that by letting sin in the door, and so God said, then I'm going to find a new place, and I'm going to rescue those who want to live in that perfect place. But to do it, I'm going to have to shed some tears. I'm going to have to offer my very own son. I probably would say that at the same time we need to realize that there are some tears that need to be shed for us to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to have him wipe those tears once and for all away. We're going to have to be like King David who recognizing the sin in his life had great tears of remorse, great tears of repentance great tears of sorrow over what he had done. For us to come to Jesus, we're going to have to let go of that self that has been riddled with sin. And we're going to have to, if you will, shed the tears of repentance and remorse that says, not I'm sorry for the consequence, I'm sorry for the sin. I'm sorry for messing up my life. I'm sorry for putting something more important than God for putting something in between me and God. 
And as those tears of repentance are shed, God says, I'll wipe them away. Now we can find ourselves in a relationship with God, no longer afraid of eternity, no longer afraid of the consequences of sin, no longer afraid of this short time, which Paul called momentary light affliction, as he spoke to the Corinthian church, compared to an eternal weight of glory. That is the promise that we have. It is, uh, I said, a challenge to look at all seven of those statements of Jesus without digging even deeper into them. I want to invite you that over the eight weeks that follow, that you're here to hear what Jesus said, what Jesus meant, and how that fit into God's great scheme. Because we cannot do those seven statements justice tonight by simply commenting on them. But it is that you also recognize that tonight, the cross stands before you, in own, if only in the superficial consideration that we have made, as God's call from the gates of eternity to bring you out of the tears, to bring you out of the sorrow, to bring you out of the sin. And as such, it makes it a perfect opportunity to extend God's invitation to you. Tonight, if you struggle, the first step in relieving yourself of that struggle is Jesus Christ. If you are one who is so caught up in sin that you think there is nothing but sorrow left for you, the first step is Jesus Christ. If you're someone that says, well, I've been living for Jesus and hoping that, and wishing that one day he's going to come, I just don't know, the hope is still in Jesus Christ. And the day is coming in which there will be no more tears. And as such, it is God's ongoing invitation that he has offered since virtually the moment that sin came in to return back to him. But now with Jesus Christ's cross before us, the hope and the realization that the work had been done and that God is ready to wipe those tears away from my this, uh, this evening, if there's a way in which you need to respond to God's invitation, Maybe you're ready to become a child of God through obedience to Jesus Christ, to be immersed in water for the remission of your sins and have those sins washed away. That's the first step to those tears being wiped away. Maybe it is that you were in fact a child of God but have strayed away and you have found like that prodigal son the difficulties that this world brings and you need to return back to him. The tears of remorse and repentance are all that's taken, need, needed for you to come back to him. If you're one that simply is struggling and you said, I, I feel like there's more tears than smiles, maybe it simply needs the encouragement and the prayers of this body of believers. And if there's a way that we can help you, we'd be glad to do that. We're going to take a moment to stand and sing together. And as we do, if there's a way that we can help you, won't you simply come forward and we'll do whatever we can uh, in that regard. Let's stand together and sing. When we walk with the Lord in the light. 